Welcome to the Influence the Choice podcast. I am Robert Ashby, and I will be the host of this podcast. As a first introduction, I think it would be wise to cover what this podcast is about before we jump into today's topic. The main goal of this podcast is to inform, while allowing you, the listener, to come to your own conclusions, as well as give some tips and helpful advice about the topics that we cover. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. The topic of this first episode is going to be about the opioid epidemic, sort of the history surrounding it, as well as what's being done today to counteract it. Before we get into the history, we need to touch on what opioids are to begin with. Now, opioids are a highly addicting compound, resembling opium, in their addictive properties or psychological effects. They affect the body by binding to receptors, and once bound to these receptors, they act as antidepressants, they inhibit your pain, and they slow your breathing. Too much of these effects is what causes an overdose. Nowadays, we just use the term opioid as a blanket term, but there's actually two types of opioids. Opioids, O-P-I-O-I-D-S, and opiates, O-P-I-A-T-E-S. The main difference here is that nowadays opioid is used as a sort of blanket term for both opioids and opiates, but opiates are natural compounds derived from opium versus opioids which can be synthetic in nature and just resemble the chemical makeup or effects caused by opium. Now there's actually four types of opioids. The first being endogenous, which are the ones made by your body. Endogenous opioids are not powerful enough to overcome chronic pain, but you can also not overdose from these opioids. There's opium alkaloids, which are made of naturally occurring compounds. There's semi-synthetic opioids, which are a mix of alkaloids and synthetic opioids. And finally, there's synthetic opioids, which are meant to mimic the traits of opium alkaloids, but can be made completely from scratch. Another quick thing to touch on before we get into the history is going to be some basic facts about the opioid epidemic. In 2015, the World Health Organization reported roughly 118,000 reported opioid disorder-related deaths, 33,091 of them were American. That means that despite being only 4.3% of the world population, Americans accounted for 28% of opioid-related deaths worldwide. Now, this number of 33,000 American overdoses increased to 47,600 in 2017. 47,600 people is enough to fill over 650 school buses filled to max occupancy. Now that we have a scope of the size of the epidemic, we're going to go into some history. In 1806, Frederick Wilhelm Andam Sertener found morphine. Morphine is the most active substance in opium, and has been used since the beginning of the 19th century and is still widely used today. 
It is actually the most used painkiller in the American Civil War. Not long after morphine, codeine was found by Jean-Pierre Robuquet. Codeine is a less powerful drug found in opium and can be made synthetically. Now this actually replaced most raw opium in medicine and is still found in some prescription cough syrup to this day. Near the end of the 19th century is when heroin was introduced to the market. It was actually thought of as a miracle drug until people started getting addicted to it and overdosing in large amounts. This is actually similar to how our current opioid epidemic formed. Now the original purpose of heroin was actually kind of interesting as it was originally supposed to be less addicting than morphine. However, as it was twice as potent, it actually ended up getting people addicted faster and was more lethal. Heroin was outlawed domestically in 1924, only around 25 years after it was first brought to the market. In the 1980s, an analysis conducted by Jane Porter and Dr. Herschel Jick became one of the most oversighted analysis of all time. In this analysis, they came to the conclusion that opioids were not as addictive as previously thought. This led to the analysis being blown out of proportion, grossly oversighted by a lot of opioid manufacturers, and they used it to provide a source for claims by their companies that harmful drugs were rather safe. Around the same time, a study by Dr. Russell Portnoy followed patients during treatment via opioids. Only two of the 38 patients ended up being addicted, and those two had a history of drug abuse. This led to a similar conclusion, that it was relatively safe to prescribe opioids to your patients. And it suffered the same fate as a previous study, being grossly oversighted and misused, despite having such a small sample pool. Now in the 1990s, there was a shift to treat pain more severely, which helped give rise to Oxycontin, an opioid produced by Purdue Pharma. At this time, the use of opioids in the medical scene was starting to rise. And in 1998, Purdue Pharma released I Got My Life Back, a promotional material played in waiting rooms across the country. I Got My Life Back interviewed a group of people who had been treated with opioids, most of them exclaiming how much it has improved their everyday life. In 1999, they released a follow-up to I Got My Life Back, or checked back in on some of the people who were participants in the first video. One of the participants, Johnny Sullivan, was obviously starting to see the negative effects of opioid use. Unfortunately, he died in a car crash from falling asleep at the wheel a couple years later. His wife says that it is the fault not of him, but of the opioids that he was prescribed that he fell asleep at the wheel. Purdue at this time was also purchasing ads in medical journals across the nation, treating opioids like a wonder drug. This is similar to how heroin was marketed in its early years. In 2001, the standard of pain is assessed in all patients was created by the Joint Commission. This required medical care facilities to monitor the pain of the patients more closely than before and try to subdue it if possible. The year prior, the Joint Commission started printing a book for required training. This book was sponsored by Purdue. In that book, it stated that there was no evidence that addiction was a significant issue and that worries about the addiction were inaccurate and exaggerated. 
Now in 2007, Purdue settled with the U.S. government for a total of $635 million on charges of misbranding and lying about the risk associated with opioids. And in 2009, the pain standard was removed. If you were to go on the Purdue website today, you would see this. Quote, Many factors contributed to the crisis, and many parties play a role in addressing it. Manufacturers, insurance companies, doctors, regulators, distributors, educators, patients, and caregivers. We are committed to doing our part. End quote. Now this seems a bit disingenuous. Given their previous actions, one has to wonder if they really mean what they say. They also sell Butrans, which is supposed to help with transitioning off of opioid use. It costs $325 to $350 per box, with four patches per box, each pass lasting seven days. It works like a nicotine patch for smokers, it's supposed to wean you off of using the opioids. Now, just like the nicotine patches, it will cause withdrawals if taken for long enough. There's also the fact that the same company that makes opioids is profiting from people getting off the opioid addiction that they themselves started. Currently, Purdue is fighting roughly 2,000 lawsuits, pinning them as one of the main agents in the opioid epidemic. But despite large losses, Purdue says they are determined to stay in business. Now that we've gotten to the modern day, let's see what people are doing to help. Now the Department of Health and Human Services has a five point list for what they plan to do to help improve the current situation. This list consists of improving access to treatment and recovery services, promoting the use of overdose reversing drugs, strengthening the understanding of the epidemic through better public health surveillance, providing support for new research on pain and addiction, as well as advancing better practices for pain management. The American Medical Association also has their own opioid task force that is trying to do the following. Register and use state prescription drug monitoring programs, enhance education and training, support treatment for pain and substance use disorders, help end the stigma surrounding opioids so people are more likely to get help, and co-prescribe naloxone, an overdose reversing drug, to patients at risk of an overdose as well as encourage safe storage and appropriate disposal of prescription medicine. However, this does not mean that everything is going great. States like California have seen increases in the use of drugs like fentanyl, which is an opioid 100 times stronger than morphine, and opioid-related deaths in the country are still on the rise. In order to gain more information, I decided to talk to someone who is more knowledgeable about this issue than I am. Hi, my name is Sarah Young. Um, I work for Friends of Youth as the Prevention Intervention Specialist um, for the Issaquah School District. So, my first question is, what are the main ways that younger people get hooked on opioids? Um, young people get hooked on opiates for many reasons. Um, a lot of the kids that I meet with who are using opiates um, typically started with other substances um, and through their time using those substances people offer them an opiate or they offer them another substance not knowing what it is and it turns out to be an opiate um, and they end up liking the, the effects that that has on their body and the way that it feels for them 
and unfortunately um, they feel comfortable in that and so for that reason um, that's kind of how younger people get hooked on opiates they see older people doing it they're not looking at how it really impacts them mm. and they fail to see the true impact it has on them um, and so they just keep using the opiates thank you uh, how does their addiction affect their personal relationships and their education? It affects their personal relationships and education in so many ways. Um, not only opiates, but all substances that teens are putting in their bodies. But opiates are a really big one right now. Um, for their personal relationships, they're uh, no longer hanging out with the positive friends that they have in their lives. Um, they're clinging towards crowds that are supporting their behaviors. Um, the friends that they've been friends with for many years and this, that support their schooling um, kind of fall off because they're not doing those same behaviors. Um, their parents probably are impacted as well as their family dynamics are shifting and there becomes lying and um, just acting out behavior in the home and that's really hard on personal relationships in the home. Siblings kind of get left behind. Um, and so we don't really see many positive relationships in the lives of many that are impacted by opiates. And in terms of their education, we kind of see that get set aside. And a lot of people who struggle with addiction, um, that's kind of becomes their main focus for them. And so they're not focused on doing their homework and they're not focused on going to class. So we see a lot of skipping behaviors. We see a lot of um, classes not getting their homework done. And so their education is really impacted too. And many students don't graduate because of those different reasons. Um, so yeah, they're, it's, a, it's a, impacting on them in many, many different ways. So if that's how it affects their education, how does it affect their brain? Yeah, brain impacts are really big um, in terms of substances on a developing team. Um, so when adolescents are using substances, it impacts um, their motivation, their willingness to work, their emotional regulation. Um, you hear a lot about dopamine in terms of how that's impacted by substances. Dopamine is kind of the thing that tells us we feel good. It gives us a feel-good signal. Um, and it's our body's brain system trying to find a balance between like the feel-good signals and the emotion signals and how we kind of balance all that stuff. And by putting a substance in our body, we see a really high increase in the dopamine. Um, and as adolescents become dependent on that, they are no longer able to kind of regulate those emotions on their own. So their decision-making and their motivation and um, their kind of willingness to keep moving forward without the help of a substance telling them to feel good with that rush of dopamine um, becomes a lot harder because your body becomes, as we like here, is like that tolerance builds, that withdrawal becomes huge and your brain can no longer um, produce the same amount of dopamine as it previously could. So we see a lower amount of dopamine um, being produced in the adolescent brain. And as we're getting older, we need all that stuff to kind of help us keep moving. Um, and we see a lot of acting on impulse and seeking pleasure and a lesson of the ability to kind of make those you know, rational decisions and the good decision making. So that really, I think, aids in adolescents' ability to go to class and do their homework because we're not making the right decisions. We're seeking that feel-good signal that we sometimes feel like we can't create for ourselves anymore um, if we're using a substance such as opiates. Interesting. So if you're kind of struggling with these issues, what are some common resources that you can get, maybe not even for yourself, but like if a friend's having trouble? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And 
it's not often talked about. So resources in the Issaquah community specifically are really cool. So I'm a huge resource um, as I work in all four Issaquah high schools. Um, and I'm connected to a larger network um, of friends and youth. That's a really cool resource for adolescents. We do a lot of different things, whether it's substance use, mental health, wraparound services. Um, we have shelters. We have lots of different access for adolescents that need it. And that's for those that are struggling and for their friends. Um, because I think that that's commonly not talked about is how do we help our friends and we don't get the help we need. Um, other resources in the area kids can go to, there's Alateen, which is a support group um, for teens who have someone in their life that is struggling with addiction. Um, so that could be parents as well might be struggling and these teens can go to Alateen and get support groups. The garage is really cool here in Issaquah. That's just a safe space for kids to go hang out and be with each other and be in support of each other. And that's just in right downtown Issaquah. There's YES in Bellevue. There's, um, uh, there's I mean, there's always Al-Anon. There's, that's for kids that are older than 18. There's AA. Um, and if I just, I ask the kids just reach out and ask somebody for help and we can always get them connected to whoever they need to be connected to um, because there's some really cool things in the area that we can always get kids connected to. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. If you want to do something to help personally, there are a couple things that you can do. One thing you could do is use take-back programs. Most pharmacies have drug disposal services where you can turn in your expired prescriptions. Some police stations also have them. Practice proper storage. If you have dangerous drugs or prescription medicine, it should be kept in a secure location out of reach of other people. Lockboxes can be bought for as little as $25 on Amazon. You should also be sure to listen to your body. If you yourself are prescribed pain medication, the goal should be to dull the pain, not to mask it. If you mask the pain, you could end up hurting yourself and making your recovery take longer. Also, you should not take prescription medications if they are not prescribed to you and you don't need them. It could be a case that you could have a negative or allergic reaction to these medications. Or you could even get addicted to a drug you don't need. You could also end up feeding the problem of antibiotic immunity, a growing problem within not just our country, but the entire world. When all is said and done, there's only so much a single person can do. Opioids still serve a large part of our population, and they will likely continue to do so until another pain reliever can come along and knock opioids out of first place. All we can really do in the meantime is hope that day comes sooner. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.